Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Good to have you at Crosswinds. If you're a newbie with us, uh, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors, so I just want to introduce myself before we, we launch in today. Today we are in the third week of our series in 1 Timothy. And last week, in the second week of this series, we essentially finally dove into the text. We just look at, looked at the first 11 verses. And we learned a little bit about this book and the context of this book. We learned who Timothy is. Timothy is actually a young pastor, pastoring in the church of Ephesus. And Timothy had interned under the Apostle Paul for 14 years with him. And now uh, Paul had planted this church in the city of Ephesus. This church had grown, and Timothy was there trying to pastor it, a young man pastoring it in Paul's place. And it was not an easy church to pastor. You know, some churches are easy. They sort of drive themselves. Some churches are difficult. And this was like the total difficult church. Remember what it was composed of. We saw uh, two weeks ago when we began our study. Uh, it was composed of a bunch of ex-Satanists because that was the, one of the centerpieces of Ephesus. Satanic worship and all kinds of things like that. So we have a bunch of ex-Satanists that are in the church, also ex-worshippers of a fertility goddess named Artemis. And then you have some Jews who had become Christians. So when you have a real mixture like that in the church, where um, he opens the, the, the Old Testament, and when he gets to the book of Leviticus and talks about animal sacrifice, all the, all the ex-Satanists are like, yeah, animal sacrifice, we've done a lot of that. He's like, no, it's not what you think. And then when he turns to the Song of Solomon, all the ex-worshippers of the fertility goddess are like, hey, this is right up our alley. You're like, no, it's not what you think. It's a difficult church to pastor. Not only is it a difficult church to pastor, but it's a big church. We saw uh, two weeks ago how this church literally has thousands upon thousands of people in it. And young Timothy is the guy who's head of it all. You think your job is difficult. You try his job. Imagine what the counseling line is like outside of his office door every single day. Imagine what kind of problems that people are coming in with when you have ex-Satanists and ex-fertility worshipers. I mean, this thing is a real piece of work. Yet this is where Timothy is pastoring. But the real problem in the church is not the difficulty of a, a tough congregation that is a bunch of young Christians. The real problem is actually the leaders in the church. Ephesus has a problem with elders gone wild. That's exactly what we have. A bunch of the elders that are supposed to be helping him are actually drifting away from Jesus. They're trying to move on from teaching about Jesus. They think they're moving on to bigger things and better things than Jesus. And Paul is like, no, this is crazy. You cannot leave Jesus because when you leave Jesus, you leave every good thing and you leave the only way to know God. Last week we saw some of the ways that they were drifting uh, we knew that, for instance, Ephesus was a highly cultured city. 
In the first week, I showed you the remains of the library in Ephesus. They had a huge library. They also did a lot of book publishing. It was a center for book publishing in the city of Ephesus. And so people in Ephesus are into the latest learning, the latest books, the latest literature. And what we saw was that these elders were now um, teaching the latest things in spiritual speculation that had been published in their city. They had turned the church into a book club. That's what they were doing. Myths, speculations, nothing about Jesus. Now, we saw last week that while this may sound like a problem that just happens in the ancient world, it's actually a problem that happens in our world today, too. That people, they publish books on guesses and myths and things that are actually fantasies, and Christians get distracted by them and captivated by them. And, and I gave you some examples. For instance, uh, remember the book, The Four Blood Moons, which was by John Hagee. It was popular. He was predicting sort of the big catastrophes that would happen, and people got caught up in that as opposed to Jesus Christ. Remember uh, Todd Burpo's book, Heaven is for Real. People thought they'd learn all the truth of heaven off the fantasies of a little kid. Or uh, another book that was really popular and still is very popular is the Bible Code, that there's secret coded messages in the Hebrew text that you can now decode using computers. You don't have to study Jesus. Paul's point is very simple. These are all spiritual speculations. They pull us from Jesus Christ, not to Jesus Christ. Whoever became a born-again Christian and had their life changed because they read The Shack? Whoever developed into a mature, godly Christian because they had their Sunday morning Bible study with The Da Vinci Code? Nobody. Do not drift from Jesus. Every good thing we have in our life, whether it's being born again or maturing into a godly man or woman, comes from Jesus Christ. Don't take your eyes off Him. Another way that we saw that the people in Ephesus were taking their eyes off of Jesus Christ was actually sort of a more subtle way. These young Christians were fascinated by the Old Testament. Many of them had not known the Old Testament at all. After all, ex-Satanists don't know anything about the Old Testament. Ex-worshippers of Artemis, a fertility goddess, don't know about the Old Testament. But the Jews among them did know the Old Testament. So they're teaching them the Old Testament, but they're handling the Old Testament laws in a way that was never meant to be handled. Um, imaginatively, I could see them reading the Ten Commandments and saying, well, I'm pretty good this week. I only violated one. That gives me a 90%. 90% a passing grade. I'm better than most. And the problem is, is that the Old Testament laws were never meant to be a ladder up which we climb to God. They were given to us to be a mirror that just shows us how far short we fall from God. It's one of the key phrases last week. They're not a ladder. They're a mirror. That means anything less than 100% is what separates you from God. Now this morning, as we pick up the text in verse 12, Paul is going to continue this theme of the importance of not drifting away from 
Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ is everything for us. But he's going to shift slightly. He's going to say we don't take our eyes off of Jesus Christ because Jesus is the one who changes our life. If you need a change in your life, if you need to take all the mess of your life and have it put back together and to have something broken become something beautiful, the only way that will happen is by Jesus. Don't take your eyes off Him. And Paul is going to show us this by essentially giving us his autobiography. So let's go ahead and jump right in to to your outlines. Jesus changes life. The first thing he says is this. All good things in Paul's life came by God's grace through Jesus. All the good things. And Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, that is Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful. He appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Paul says, let me tell you what I was. First of all, he says, I was a blasphemer. Uh, Blasphemy is someone who is irreverent towards things that are sacred. Cheating with disrespect things that should be treated with holiness and purity. Uh, Maybe a way to put this is, you know, you shouldn't spray paint profanity on anything, right? That's just wrong. But it's especially wrong to do it on the church parking lot. (laughs) You know, that's irreligious towards something that is sacred. Paul says, that is the kind of guy I was. I was a really bad, messed up dude. He says, I was also a persecutor. That means somebody who systematically hunts other people down for pain or death. In fact, if you look at Paul's life story, you find that when it came to the stoning of the first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen, Paul was right there. You know what Paul was doing? Let me hold your jacket for you so you can have maximum velocity with your pitching arm as you throw rocks at his head trying to crack his skull. Good throw! Good hit. I was cheering him on. Cheering on his death on the sidelines. That was me, Paul says. I would call him not just a persecutor. I would call him an exterminator. Now you say, why would I call him an exterminator? You call the exterminator when when cockroaches get in your house. And you don't want to eliminate just some of them. You want to eliminate every last one of them. Because even one cockroach is not acceptable to you. That was Paul. Even one Christian was not acceptable to him. And he would do anything and go anywhere to try and eliminate every single one he could find. In fact, we read often in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, he was on his way to Damascus when Jesus Christ appeared to him and changed him. But here's what we often don't realize. From Jerusalem to Damascus was a 150-mile walk one way. When you are willing to take a 300-mile round trip, mostly on your feet, so you can simply find and kill more Christians that are that far away from you, you are a serious Christian exterminator. 
That's Paul. It's who he was. And he says, I was also insolent. That means disrespectful. Nasty irreverence. Insulting. Paul says, I was a really hardcore bad dude who was completely against Jesus in any way possible. But that's who I was. What has God done to his life? First of all, Jesus appeared to him, we know, on Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, and changed him. Paul says here, he appointed me to his service. Not only did Jesus just change my life, and me to repent of my sin and trust in Jesus, but he appointed me to serve him. And not only that, he says, but he also, um, excuse me, he judged me faithful. Now, let me pause here for a moment. What does it mean to say he judged me faithful? This is not Paul saying, I am better than other people. This is Paul in this context, completely humbled, considered who he was to look at the grace God gave him. Look how, who I was, and yet God saved me. He appointed me to serve him. And then he judged me faithful to entrust me with an incredibly high task of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the Gentile world. Paul is saying, I cannot believe God has been so gracious to save me and to not only save me, but to let me serve him in such a high capacity when I deserved exactly the opposite. Not only do I get to serve God as an apostle to the Gentiles, but he said right in the beginning, but every day as I go along the way and I try and serve God, it is Jesus Christ who didn't just give me the task, but he strengthens me every day in this task to make it possible. So let me summarize Paul's testimony. His former life, as he was a hard core, over-the-top criminal against Jesus. But Jesus changed him. He saved him. He appointed him to be a minister for him, gave him the incredibly high responsibility of sharing Jesus with the entire Gentile world, and then Jesus empowers him every day to do it. Paul is saying, all the good things... All of the good things that happened in my life came from one person. His name is Jesus. And it is inconceivable that I would ever want to drift away from him. Because <clears throat> Jesus has changed my life. Now I want to stop for a moment. And I want you to mentally look back on your own history. Some of you grew up in a Christian home, so you maybe didn't have too wild of a B.C. or before Christ days. Others of you came to Christ in your teens or your 20s or your 30s. Look at who you were. Look at the life you lived. Now look at how your life has changed because of Jesus. 
Jesus changes not just Paul's life, but Jesus changed your life. All the good things we have in our life come from one person in one place. His name is Jesus Christ. Whatever we do, do not drift away from Him. Now, Paul continues, and he makes this point, that God extends saving grace to those who are ignorant of Jesus, not to those who are intentionally walking away from Jesus. Notice this is a very interesting line. He says, but I received mercy, he's talking about from God, the saving grace, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Jesus Christ. This is sort of strange. Why does he want to make this point that, by the way, God was incredibly gracious to me when I had acted ignorantly in unbelief? Put yourself in the context of this letter. The problem is elders gone wild. Do they know what Jesus Christ has done for them? Yes, they're elders. They're church elders. If church elders don't know what Jesus Christ has done for them, they don't have any, they're like, shouldn't be there. They know what Christ has done for them, but they're intentionally walking away from Jesus. Should they expect to receive incredible amounts of God's saving mercy in their life by intentionally walking away from the only one who can save them? No. In fact, the, old, uh, the New Testament talks about this. For instance, it says this in the book of Hebrews, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? The writer of Hebrews' point is this. If people die without mercy by intentionally rejecting the Old Testament law, what do you think it is like by people who intentionally reject Jesus Christ, who is the only way to be saved? Jesus Christ is the one who changes our lives. Incidentally, in here, he says this. It's sort of interesting. He says, not only have I received mercy, but I've received incredible amounts of grace. Grace that, he says, overflowed into my life. What he's talking about is not only has Jesus changed his life, but Jesus changed his heart. He made him into a different person, not just gave him a different life. He says, the, great, the faith and the love that are in Jesus Christ overflowed into me. In other words, beforehand, I didn't have faith. I have unbelief. But now I have faith in Christ. Beforehand, I had hatred. I had anger. I was a blasphemous, insolent, irreverent person. Now, who has God made me into? A loving person. He has changed Paul's, not just his life, but changed his heart. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul's autobiography is all about one person, Jesus Christ. 
who changed him from being a nutcase persecutor into a church leader. And that Jesus is the one who gives him the strength every day to live for Christ. Jesus changes lives. He doesn't just change Paul's life in the Old Testament, but he changes our life today. And he makes us into completely new people. I know what some of you are saying. Well, that's true. I mean, Jesus changes lives. I know that. But you don't know my life. My life is too messed up. My life is too broken. My life is beyond hope. And Paul knows that is what you're thinking. So as he continues, he gives hope for the hopeless. Look what he says here. Nobody is beyond God's grace through Jesus. Nobody. The saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe to Him for eternal Christ, for eternal life. Now, in the Bible, uh, there are five times it says, These, this is a trustworthy saying. Incidentally, they all occur in, either in 1st or 2nd Timothy or in Titus, these trustworthy sayings. What they were, because these letters were written towards the end of Paul's life, after the establishment of the churches, these were little bumper sticker slogans that were going around the church that in encapsulates essential Christian doctrine that people needed to know and believe. And this is what the essential bumper sticker slogan doctrine says. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now let me walk through this. It says Jesus came into the world. He wasn't part of the world. The Bible tells us he created the world, but he wrote himself into the story of human history to save us. He says he came in to save sinners. That's us. We're sinful. We're messed up. We need to be saved by Jesus. But then it says this interesting thing, of whom I am the foremost. Now, most pop psychologists would tell you, oh, don't say that. That'll ruin your inner child. To say that you are totally messed up or you're the worst. You're not the worst. There are certainly people out there that are much worse off than you are when it comes to sin. Don't look at yourself as bad or evil. But Paul says the opposite. Essential Christian doctrine. Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I'm the worst. Why is it essential that we look at our sin and say, I feel like I am the absolute worst sinner on the planet? Let me tell you why. Because 
it is only when we come to the end of ourselves, when we see our sin as dark, as wicked, as ugly, when we see our sin like Jesus Christ sees our sin, that we come to the end of ourselves in total brokenness and we run to Jesus and we trust in Him alone to save us. Because if we look at our sin and we say, well, you know, I know I've made some bad choices, but I'm certainly better than most, or not as bad as others. Who are we relying on to save ourselves, at least in part then? You know what a great gift of God is? One of the greatest gifts of God that He can give you is deep-throated, full-hearted conviction of sin and brokenness that you get on your knees, that you cry with tears coming down your eyes, and you say, God, I am so screwed up. I have messed up so royally. I am the absolute worst sinner out there. I desperately need a great Savior. And when that happens, and you trust in Jesus, that is the moment you are saved. Because you get your hope off yourself, and you put your hope in Jesus Christ. That's why this is a trustworthy saying. Now Paul says, you know, one of the reasons that God saved me is so when you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, you know what, I am the worst of sinners, that you would look at my life and that you would have hope. That God can take a totally broken life and make it into a beautiful life. God can take a messed up person and use them in great ways for his honor and glory. Paul says, look at me, insolent, blasphemous, conspirator to murder, transformed by the grace of God to being a church leader, an apostle, to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the Gentile world and strengthened by Jesus every day to do it. If God can do that for Paul, trust me, he can take your broken and messed up life and do something amazing for his honor and glory out of, do something amazing for his honor and glory too. You need to understand that what separates you from an incredibly changed life is not the size or the greatness of your sin. It's simply this the rejection of your Savior. Let me say it again. What separates you from a totally changed life is not the size of your sin, but rejection or drifting away from your Savior. Jesus changes lives. Now, Paul, at this point, is a little overwhelmed. He thinks about how God has been so gracious and he has radically changed his life and done so much good all through Jesus that he like bursts out in worship, which is an appropriate response for each one of us as we think of how God has changed our lives through Jesus Christ for us to overflow in worship. Now, as we go through this, there's some interesting things on this because the point is this, a life saved by Jesus can't help but worship Jesus. Let me read the text. Paul all of a sudden says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, 
be honor and glory forever and forever. Now, this is what makes it interesting. I told you in the first week that Ephesus was famous for the goddess, for the goddess Artemis. And her temple dominated the skyline. It was monstrously huge, the size of baseball fields. Each one of these worships, these one of these lines of praise that Paul bursts out into seems to be an exact opposite of Artemis and her worship. Let me explain it to you this way. Artemis was a queen, and she... According to the tradition of the time, she came into existence at one time as the daughter of the god Zeus and the goddess Leto. But what does Paul say? The one I worship is not the queen, it's the king. And did he come into existence? No. He's the king of the ages forever. And he's the one who changes lives. Artemis... Her temple took 200 years to build. Her temple was in constant need of repairs. Even the statue was in constant need of repairs. And she was physically visible. But what does, God, what does Paul say about the one true God of the universe? He's invisible, not visible. And in, he is immortal. It's interesting, in, in the Greek, the word immortal means uh, does not perish over time. So the idea was the temple of Artemis constantly needed to be propped up and to repaired. But God doesn't need to be propped up. God doesn't need to be repaired. The same God that changed Paul's life 2,000 years ago is just as active just as real and just as powerful today in this room right now. And when you see your sin and you run to our Savior, Jesus Christ, He will change your life too. He is imperishable, immortal. His power never fades. But I think... Uh, one of the great contrasts is that the truth and time go hand in hand. Over time, the truth always comes out. If you remember back in the book of Acts, as we talked about this in the very first week, that as the church just exploded in the city, that what happened was there was a, a, a man named Demetrius who was a maker of silver souvenirs of Artemis's. Little, little Artemis statues, that he gathered a whole bunch of people from the city of Ephesus to go into the theater, the Colosseum that we saw there. And they chanted together for two hours straight, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Incidentally, that theater holds 20,000 people. Imagine 20,000 people chanting for two hours straight, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians because they were concerned that some of her glory and power was, was being taken away and going to Jesus. But I told you the truth and time go hand in hand. Today, nobody worships Artemis. Today, her temple is in absolute ruins, even though it took 200 years to build. 
But today, one in every three people on planet Earth worship Jesus. And you know why? Because Jesus changes lives. Artemis couldn't. Now, let's flip on the back page of your outline. The message of Jesus changing lives is now in our hands. I like when Paul says this to Timothy. He sort of switches here of having presented the fact that Jesus changes lives. He discharges Timothy. It's this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Paul says the fact that we are great sinners, but we have a great Savior, that when we run to Him, He changes our lives and He changes our hearts. And that we may not, let us not drift from this. Let us not be distorted on this. Let this not be twisted in our lives. He says this is ever so important. This message I have entrusted into your hands, Timothy, so the people in Ephesus know the truth and are changed by the truth. But here's the problem. Timothy's long dead and gone. While he was entrusted with this message, he can't carry it forth anymore. Who is now entrusted with this gospel message? Whose job is it to make sure that people hear that we're great sinners, but we have an even greater Savior? Whose job is it to make sure that it is not twisted or distorted or drifted away from? It's your job, and it's my job. It's our job that our friends and neighbors would hear about the amazing truth of Jesus Christ. It's our job that at night, when we put our children to bed, that we would read them the Scriptures, and we would tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. It's our job. This has been entrusted into our hands now. Now, Paul closes with a very interesting line. He says, be careful though. Be careful when this message has been entrusted in your hands to not tolerate sin in my life because it will change what I believe about Jesus in my heart. Be careful now that you have this message not to tolerate sin in my life because it will change what you believe about Jesus in your heart. He says, that you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. And by rejecting this, some have shipwrecked, have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Timothy, you are engaged in a war in the church of Ephesus. People want to drift from Jesus. They want to distort the message of Jesus. Hold fast to your faith. But as you hold fast to your faith, make sure you also hold on to a good conscience. What does this mean? Numerous times throughout Scripture, in the book of Acts, Paul says, I take pains always to have a clear conscience or a good conscience. That means... I will not tolerate sin in my life. I will not tolerate doing evil in my heart. 
I will not do that. Why does Paul say this is so essential? Not just that we believe the right thing about Jesus, but that we have pure hearts and pure lives as we live for Him. Let me explain to you why holiness is so important for us. We must seek it as Christians. He says this, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Now, as we look at this, we see a pronoun, this. What is the this referring to? And it can sometimes make you wonder. But in the Greek, it is very clear. The this is a singular pronoun. It is referring to one thing. And according to the Greek rules of grammar, it refers to the object that is closest to it. It is referring to the good conscience. By rejecting a good conscience, he says, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. What he's saying is by tolerating sin in some people's hearts, what it's done is it has backfed and it's changed what they believe about Jesus Christ and it's ruined their Christian walk. And he gives an example. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Who are these guys? We don't know who Alexander is. It's a very generic name in that time. But Hymenaeus is a more unique name. And Hymenaeus comes up again in 2 Timothy. And we're going to see what happened to his faith. Let me show you. It says, And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Hymenaeus has some really messed up theology and beliefs about Jesus Christ. He thinks the resurrection has already happened. Now, I had a guy ask me after the first service, how could the resurrection already happen? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe he believes it was a resurrection in your heart, not in your body. I don't know what he's saying. The point is, his theology is completely messed up. He's drifted away from the truth of Jesus Christ. And how did he get there? He tolerated sin in his heart and in his life. He did not maintain a good conscience and repent of his sin and eliminate sin. But by tolerating that, it backfed and changed what he believes about Jesus Christ. And he drifted away. The big message the big message of these verses is very clearly this, that Jesus changes lives. doesn't matter how messed up you are. doesn't matter what sin you have done. Look at Paul's life. When we go to Jesus, after we see the darkness and wickedness of our sin, we run to our great Savior and He will change your lives in making something beautiful out of it. That is very clear. And he changes lives not just in the times of the New Testament, but he changes lives today too. The other message, and it's for those who have maybe walked with Christ for a number of years, is clearly this. 
that you may have the right beliefs about Jesus in your head. But if you choose to tolerate sin in your heart, that's the fastest way to turn yourself into a heretic. Because tolerating sin in your life will backfeed into your theology and change your faith so you can ultimately find a way to live with yourself. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you so much that you are still in the business of changing lives. That when we run to you, that you will make us into something new. No matter how broken, no matter how messed up we are, when we are at the end of ourselves, completely broken with our sin, that is when you do your greatest work in our lives. And we thank you for that. And Jesus, we also thank you for the challenge that we would always maintain a good conscience. Men and women committed to purity, committed to holiness. Because as we know, not that we would ever do this for perfection, but we want that to be our direction. Because we know that when we seek to live holy lives to you, that it will help us to hold on to the one true faith in our life that can actually change us, which is Jesus and him alone. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.